This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. We've not had a discussion with a historian for a while. This week I have a discussion therefore with Professor Rochona Mojumdar of Chicago University. Professor Mojumdar has recently published this book uh, it's called Art Cinema and India's Forgotten Futures: Film and History in the Post Colony. Professor Rochona Mojumdar is a historian of modern India with a focus on Bengal. Her writings span histories of gender and sexuality, Indian cinema, especially art cinema and film music and modern indian intellectual history she also writes on post colonial history and theory mojumdar's interest in post coloniality and post colonial theory led to her second work which is called writing post colonial history there she analyzed the impact of post colonial theory on historiography her interests in the culture and aesthetics of mass democracy led her to study cinema in particular indian art cinema her third book which we discuss here today is an analysis of global art cinema in independent india it is also a book about art cinema as a mode of doing history in a post colonial setting She spoke to me about why and how the category of global art cinema found a receptive home in India. The ways in which it became part of a larger movement to lift films to the status of an art by some individuals and institutions, particularly as history of the film society movement. She tries in the book to recover and recall the special imaginations of those participants the participants um their imaginations for the future of india she believes that the work of these three filmmakers she studies in the book satyajit roy mrinal sen and ritwik ghatak also represent some strategies of coping with a present where a path towards a definite or clear future looks tentative or uncertain that quality in particular makes the book resonate with the present moment when it's just as hard to predict where the future is going here's the rest of the conversation please listen in thank you anirban it's very good to be on this program so uh, rochunadi what is the book really about why do you call it art cinema and india's forgotten futures now uh i do get asked this question a lot uh which is you know why do i call the book art cinema and india's forgotten futures and i should say that there are a few things that motivated the title and they really also help you understand why the book is structured as it is now I'm a historian by training and one of the things that I wanted to do in the book has to do with the project of archival recovery. The book is as you know a history of the category that we call global art cinema 
And in its first three chapters, I discuss the way in which the category made its appearance in early post-colonial India. Who brought it to, to, to post-colonial India? Why did it find such a good home in the early decades, uh, in the first decade really after independence? And through what institutional mechanisms did it spread in the country? So I discussed the, the ways in which, as I said, the category first made its appearance in the post-colony, the role played by particular individuals and institutions in the struggle to elevate film to the status of an art, because film was seen as pure entertainment until now. It was one of, it was a fallen art in some ways, okay? Uh, so nothing like music, uh, sculpture, painting, uh, so there was there was an aspiration here to have film be taken more seriously, that it be accorded the status of an art. And I look at the role played by particular individuals and institutions, both Indian and foreign. So Mari Seaton, a British film activist, for example, plays a very important role in one of the earlier chapters. But really the movement couldn't, or the arts, eventually what became something uh that I call the film society movement in the third chapter of the book, it could not have happened without the interest, enthusiasm and commitment of hundreds of thousands of people. And even though, uh, you know, Seton plays an important role, it's really Indians who carry forward the zeal for art cinema, the zeal to watch a particular film that wasn't Indian, nor was it Hollywood, you know, so, so really it was an opening to uh, or an opening up to what today we call world cinema in those early years of independence. And Forgotten Futures has to do with recovering those forgotten archives of enthusiasm and commitment to film to see, to, to see through the, that project of archival recovery what imaginations of the future people had both of cinema in India, but also of India more generally. So that was one of the reasons why I was playing with this notion of, of the future, but really the, it's, it's intimations of the future that was contained in certain pasts we have forgotten. So through archival recovery, I wanted to introduce readers to that imagination, to, to both those pasts and the imaginations of the future that lay buried in those pasts. But there was another aspect, there was another very important aspect of forgetting that's there in the title. Because you could ask that, why do I say forgotten for three filmmakers, Satyajit Ray, Riti Ghatok and Mrinal Sen, who at least to a certain generation of Indians, are hardly forgotten. So why do I say forgotten? That is because what I try to analyze and retrieve from their works, especially from the 1960s onwards and intensifying in the 1970s, are some cinematographic strategies for contemplating how to comport yourself in a disorienting post-colonial present that did not produce any direct sense of a future. So it's a very particular kind of, uh, 
or it's a very particular thing that I try to retrieve about these filmmakers that is not necessarily remembered when we discuss these filmmakers. So there's a third. So that's the aspect of forgetting that's operational in the second part of the book. So um, let me uh, bring you to the question of the state. You touch upon the role of the state briefly in the first chapter where there appeared to be a brief convergence between the aspiration of, of the first generation of art filmmakers in India and uh, at least some elements in the state. And then that uh, brief convergence breaks down in course of the 50s, as you write. What was that phase like? Oftentimes, art cinema is equated with what people think of as a state-sponsored cinema. Now, I don't entirely share that view. And what I, what I argue in the book is that um, in the beginning, and when I say the beginning, I mean the beginning of the new Indian state from 1947. So what I say in the book is that around 1947, when India became independent, it was as if there was a shared sense among uh, certainly the educated, uh, the educated elite in India that notwithstanding the ravages of famine, of war, the trauma of partition, history in, uh, in the new nation had a unified, had a unified telos. And that had to do with a narrative of transition to modernity. That is to say that we've all collectively experienced these, uh, these traumas and troubles and plights, but we are all together in a march forward towards progress and towards modernity. At the scale of the individual and the nation alike, it was as if people were committed to a shared and single story. Okay. So for its educated sections, the nation existed as what I argue as a pedagogical project. And the imagination of cinema was actually conceived in the same stride with this pedagogical project. So good films and good cinema, it was yes. as if... Well, that's how means the convergence of kind of takes shape, right. good like films. Good and discerning citizen subjects, okay? So... What I document in the book is actually how the aspiration to make good films became dislodged from the, from the aspiration to make good citizens. And that's, that's something I discuss in the second part of the book. But in the first, I show how there were parallel projects. You know, the state was interested in elevating film to the status of an art. So there was first a film inquiry committee set up. In, um, in, in, in the early 50s, headed by a bureaucrat called S.K. Patil, there was some money given to for the promotion of, of film and a whole bunch of institutions were set up. So the National Film Archives, the Film and Television Institute, the Children's Film Institute, the, Fil the Film Finance Corporation. And it's really because of the role played by the Film Finance Corporation that often people think that art cinema is a state-sponsored cinema. But really, what the Film Finance Corporation did was to was to was to give certain low-interest loans 
to certain filmmakers. And that too, it was most robust for a very, very brief period of time in the 60s under the leadership of someone called B.K. Karanjia. But there were these initiatives by the state. And um, and in part, so, I mean, it, it would be interesting to map, or that I tried to partially map the, the, the journey of cinema alongside this project of, uh, of creating good citizens. And then I show how they part ways after, after a certain time. So that, that's the extent to which the state plays a role in this film. And then gradually, I think filmmakers register the disappointment with the new Indian state. You know, so there's a very early critique of the state in the body of films that I talk about. And in that sense, I think they are, they're post-colonial films in the sense that uh, they're dealing with not just after colonialism, so post in that sense, but they're also very, very critical of the fact that the state has failed to uphold certain promises that it, uh, that it was founded upon. I just um, want you to tell me a little more about this um, very post-colonial dimension of this project. You explain in the introduction, of course, that these films disrupt a sense of linear time. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm speaking very simply here. Um, and mm-hmm. you show that, as a matter of fact, in the first chapter towards the end, with example from... Um, Komal Gandhar and and Shubhan uh, Rekha and in the second chapter with Fubon Shum. Um, will you explain the logic of that argument very broadly speaking that uh, the ways in which these films break down the logic of a linear time of progress broadly speaking very very uh, generally well I mean uh, you know good place to uh begin might be Ray's Apu Trilogy. Now, as you know, what the Apu Trilogy maps is, I mean, it's based on on a literary work, uh, but both the literary work and the film map the becoming of an individual. So you follow the journey of a boy. It's a story of a boy becoming man, let's put it that way. And... Uh, it's it's a Bildungsroman, you know, it shows the becoming of an individual. Now, that individual is also the citizen subject, right? So it, it in a sense, it shows the challenges faced by that individual, the losses suffered by that individual, but eventually the becoming of that of that individual into, into, a, it, it, into a citizen subject. Now, a fully fledged at, individual citizen, yes. Correct. Now, if you look at films from the 60s and 70s, there is really no story of becoming in the same way. It's these films in that sense, they, they, lack, they lack that kind of a developmental sense of futurity, you know, where you, and that's what I mean by... Uh, the film's functioning as a critique of a transition to modernity narrative. I mean, there's a lot of action in the films. A lot of things happen, but there is no transition 
from point A to point B. Now, as you know, I mean, there's a sense of actually being locked in a particular kind of present. And and in some ways, those films act as resources of how to how to live in in a present from which there is you know there is no there is no way out escape of sorts uh, yeah in, in, right but you i mean you know in different ways i think different directors show how to live in that present how to be political selves in those presents and also in, to some extent like how to flourish in those presents not all but uh you know, some of the films that I discuss, I mean, certainly there are moments in Riti Godrick's films where you have, and I, I, I show that with uh, Godrick's use of, of music. music. And I show how in particular moments of song, there is actually a sense of individual flourishing, which is not there in the narrative of the films. Okay. But all the films, what, what, what holds them together is that they don't have they don't have a sense of developmental progress in them. So, uh, and 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 it's in this, how shall I put it, in the formal experimentation with time, I think that is something uh, that also makes them post-colonial, in my opinion. I mean, aside from the fact that they're also dealing with the conditions of life in a new nation state that has just come out of 250 years of colonialism. So there's both the chronological aspect of why they are post-colonial, but also in the particular way in which the films deal with time. Because as you know, in the writing of post-colonial history, the notion of temporality has played a very important role. So the films are both historiographical as well as historical, you know, so historiographical in the sense that they're dealing very formally with notions of temporality and historical in the sense that they're mapping the time of the post-colony. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd be tempted really to um, take up that question now. I was uh, hoping I'd ask it later. You, Since you bring it already in Riti Ghatok's films and music, um, you bring in the concept of something called song time. And you briefly uh, mean that uh, the song um, or the music, uh, the ways in which they enter into the narrative, disrupt the narrative. They uh, uh, go against, really, or above, beyond the narrative and invoke a parallel time, a time where past and futures tend to merge in the present. And in that merger, really, their emergence... um, a sort of liberatory uh, moment. Right. I'd like you to um, stay on that a little bit and with a couple of examples, perhaps, if possible. Okay. You know, as you know, Riti Kodok was a really, he was a controversial figure. I mean, in the sense that uh, unlike uh, Ray or Mrinal Sen, he did not enjoy uh, the kind of fame that these two other figures did during his lifetime. He wasn't, I mean, I'm sorry, this is not directly getting to your question, but I think it's relevant and I will make my way to your uh, your question. So, I mean, during his his lifetime, he he never left India, except briefly during the making of 
Tita Shikti Nodinam. He never had the honor of serving on jury panels at international festivals, and very few of his films were in fact exhibited outside of India. Within India, as you know, he started out as a, as a member of the Communist Party, but he was expelled from the Communist Party uh, primarily for, uh, he composed this manifesto where he outlined what the duties of cultural workers like him ought to be. But the party at the time found that to be almost heretical. And I think what the party found heretical was that Ghodok's communism was never was never one that was a kind of died in the wool rationalism. You know, he wanted to bring in, uh, or he was very influenced by the by the theories of 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 Jung, Jung particularly yes. his theories of the archetype. Uh, and he wanted to because his thing was in order to understand cultural production, you have to understand the role played by myths, the role played by archetypes in uh, in cultural formations. And so in other words, I mean, you know, he writes, for example, in, in several articles that you cannot really understand uh, modern India unless you, without understanding how the archetype of the mother has been distorted in this country you know for example he says in one place that oh this is a place where we where we worship the mother but look at all the abuses uh hmm. done in, you know to 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 female figure or to women in this country so the the, the archetype of the great mother which is a central figure of hindu mythology was very, very central to him. And he would always say that, look, there is an aspect of benediction in this mother, but there is also the aspect of, of destruction in the form of Kali. Uh, and so so he, he would often invoke the Puranas. He would often invoke Agomoni and Bijaya songs. And, you know, he would, he would often say that, look, I mean, to us, like celebrating the mother's pain as she sends a child bride off to her husband's home is, is actually a matter of celebration in this culture. I mean, that is in some ways a twisting of the idea of what it means to flourish like a woman. And often he would invoke these things in his songs. So if you take, I mean, in the book, I discuss in at some length, actually, some sequences from some song sequences from his film, Meghita Katara, Cloud Cat Star. And if you don't mind, Oniban, I think it might be uh, it might be useful to to read a little bit. If you would permit me, I would I would just read That'll some. That would be wonderful. Parts. So one of the first songs I I consider in in my chapter on Ghodok is actually um, it's an Uma Shongit. Okay, it's um, the lyrics of this song. Unlike, you know, most songs in Indian cinema, uh, it's Ailo Uma Kole Loi, Come to My Lap, Dear Uma. The lyrics are very indistinct. Even so, we can, we can tell that it is a song meant for Uma, which, as you know, is another name of the goddess Durga, who has been being beckoned by her mother Manuka to leave her marital home and visit her parents. 
Now, the song occurs at a climactic moment in the film because very briefly, uh, as you probably, again, you, you know this, that uh, Meghira Katara is, it revolves around a family that is evicted from East Bengal, then East Pakistan, now Bangladesh, trying to eke out a living in a refugee colony in Calcutta. It consists of Nita, the protagonist, her father, who's an idealistic school teacher who spouts Wordsworth and Yeats, played by Bijan Bhartchaj. And um, there are also two brothers, Montu and um, Chonkar. Sure. And yeah. there, is, there is there is the her sister, sister, the sister, yeah, Nita and and her mother. Okay, so, uh, but really, I mean, Nita, who at one point in the film is described as Sindhbad the sailor by a local grocer, she goes to great lengths to satisfy the desires and wants of the entire family. So dependent is the family on on her labors that that her mother connives to get her younger daughter, Gita, married off to Nita's longtime suitor, Shonoth, so that she doesn't lose the money that Nita earns from her job. Now, beaten down by a, very, by a lack of care and poverty and all kinds of... Uh, and when she's sick, the family because, wants her to go off because her right. a, a sister now she is going to have a child. Right. And she's, she gets tuberculosis and really the night that... Uh, they find out that she has tuberculosis. They want her to leave the house precisely for what you said. It's a night of torrential rain and the father comes in and he says that there's no place for you in this house. Uh, a newborn is expected here. Nobujatuk is expected here. Uh, even though you've sustained us, it's a, it's a very melodramatic but a very tragic moment. So as she takes, as she collects her spare belongings, the song commences, okay? So I write in the book, and now I'm reading, Ghatok's use of an Uma Shongit at this climactic moment in the film recalls the long history of goddess devotion in Bengal, but also serves to turn that tradition on its head by demonstrating the abuse suffered by one aspect of the goddess, Uma. In this case, Uma and Nita are synonymous, right? Ironically, much of the abuse comes from Gita, the sensual woman and the mother who represents, as Ghatok put it, the cruel aspect. Nita, Gita and their mother are each different aspects of the archetype of the mother goddess. Their respective dispositions provide the driving motive of the film. Apart from the irony inherent in playing an Umashungit, for a consumptive woman who shall die a spinster, Ghodok is also commenting on the continuing cruelty of a tradition that was once called that was once practiced called Goridan. Right. The breeding of mythical and historical time in both the Uma Shongit and the Robindra Shongit that occurs before this, Jirate Madhu Arguli is formally rendered with shots of Nita's face in a series of tight frontal close-ups. The gleam in her eyes, her curly hair streaming down her shoulders, and her upward gaze are reminiscent of Durga idols as they are immersed in the holy Ganges after Durga Puja. 
the significance of the inclusion of such mythic and folk elements in Indian art cinema is something I discuss in the book. But most important is the fact that the song, a central characteristic of Indian cinema, is used by Ghotok to convey the historical, the mythical, and the queer dimensions of Nita's destiny. During the Uma Shongit, Nita's face carries signs of her fatal illness, splatters of blood instead of the sindoor or the vermilion that you would see in the parting of a married woman's hair. As she picks up the childhood photograph of her with Shankar in the hills, her desire to return to that spot of childhood bliss is established. But in this instance, it will be a final union with Mohakal. The song is the site for the enactment of Nita's physical and psychic longing. Right. So, you know, so those are the ways, those are some of the ways in which I discuss the songs um, to see it, what it kind actually of- comes out uh, wonderfully clearly now that uh, you, you read that bit out. Um, especially the juxtaposition of uh, so many uh, registers of time and myths and reality and possibilities uh, coming together in those moments. Um, Let me try and conclude this section with taking you to uh, Ghatak's Bengaliness. You observe in the first chapter, for example, uh, Ghatak represents a sense of fundamental resistance really or there are ways in which he fundamentally indianizes the category of art films by um, using um, things like myths local um, folk songs um, and other languages that really resists translation and that in some way breaks down uh, Murray Sitton's uh, ambition of of creating a kind of Indian version of global art films. Correct. Now, if I were to uh, now take you to the next part of your history of these uh, movies, where you discuss the newness of the new wave in the 60s and 70s, will you tell me a little bit about the sense in which you um, use the word new? Because that indeed is very different from the debates that took place about the content of these films. See, in the new cinema chapter, as you as you saw, it's what's regarded as the Indian new wave, right? I mean, there were new waves taking place in many parts of the world, uh, many of them before the 1960s, so the French new wave. the Many of the European new waves happened a little bit earlier. The Indian one was coinciding with the Latin American new waves, certain... Uh, Eastern European new waves. There are many new waves that are, I mean, so it's a global phenomenon, the new wave. What I found fascinating when I was doing archival research was that there was actually a huge amount of controversy uh, in the 60s, about 60s and really early 70s, about whether there was anything new about the Indian new wave. And the controversy involved film critics, filmmakers, just film lovers and a huge amount journalists of journalists and, and, and yeah. indeed uh, even non-professionals uh, that you write about Correct. later. Um, exactly. I mean, and a lot of ink, I mean, you know, was spilled on, on whether there was anything new. 
and really the yes. at the vanguard of some of the denouncing of whether or not there was anything new or yes. challenging whether or not anything new was was Shotujit Rai. Shotujit and he Rai seemed himself. to suggest that I mean he has a he has an article called Is There an Indian New Wave? And he gives this answer that, you know, his answer is a resounding no. Now, so I tried to analyze those debates as to what was new in the Indian New Wave. And I I, I analyze, first of all, the debates. Then I, I see what some people said, you know, a lot of people were saying that, look, these films are, they're drawing upon, I mean, much of, many of them are happening in, some is happening. Some are happening in Bengali. Some are happening in Hindi, in Malayalam, in Kannada, and they are drawing on what used to be called the new literatures. So, Nai Kahani in Hindi, yes. Nai Afsane, uh, the, you know the the Kannada new waves. So, you are Anantamurti Samskara, for example, was was um, was adapted uh-huh. by Ramaretti uh, into the film by that name. Um, Many of the Indian new waves film, new wave films, so Money Calls films, for example, are uh, adapted from Nirmal Varma. Sara Akash is based on a film. Uh, so Mohan Rakesh and yeah, Mohan Rakesh, yes. uh, Nirmal Varma are important figures, important literary figures whose works are being adapted by many, many new wave filmmakers. So there's that aspect that I discuss: the relationship between literature and cinema. I also discussed the role played by the Film Finance Corporation in advancing these loans that I mentioned to you earlier. These uh, two uh, aspiring and new filmmakers to to make low budget films on new themes. So new themes such as new kinds of sexual relationships, disability, the the emergence of new regions of India, new politics. Many of these are are sort of coming into Indian cinema for the first time through the Indian New Wave, and I discuss all that. And and you seem to conclude that uh, the newness uh, appeared to lie in the animation, in the discussion, in the engagement that it really made possible, that distinguishes it from an earlier era of sorts. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I say is that is that we can keep on making lists of, oh, this was new, that was new. Uh, so films relationship with literature was new. Films in relationship with politics was new. Funding structures were new. Uh, all of these were new. But then I, I conclude the chapter by saying that you know, newness ultimately resides in how the viewer experiences it in the film. Absolutely. And I illustrate that with the example Money of Bhuvan No, no, with Bhuvan I do not discuss it with Money Call. I actually discuss it with Towards the, the end, yes, you discuss yes, with, with the close reading of a particular moment in Bhuvan Now, again, there is a the, lot that you can see about Bhuvan that was new. Its use of animation, as you said, was new. The kind of music that it had was new. K.K. Mahajan, who was a graduate of the Film Institute, became the film's cinematographer, and he was going to become a very important cinematographer in Indian cinema. Sadhu Meher, who plays a role in the film, uh, he was a newcomer. Suhashini Mule was a newcomer. Amitabh Bachchan 
whose voiceover is used the in voiceover. the film. The voiceover. Yes. Uh, it is also a Hindi debut of Utpal Dutt, so that was also also new. But really, it's it's a moment. I mean, and you know, as Shotojitra described the film, he said, "Oh, you can just summarize it in seven words. It's a big <laughs> yes. bureaucrat seven word dismissal." Yeah, uh, yeah, like who's tamed by bureaucrat reformed by rustic rustic But so you know, and people would say, "Yeah, yeah, you know, this is a theme that you see in so many Indian films, like Kashmir ki Kali, or where you have this city man who." encounters the village woman and is completely transformed and what i argue is that you know bhuvan shom sort of flips the sense of deja vu you know it's almost as if ray misrecognized it as a repetition of this tired theme in indian cinema where urban man goes to rural india and is completely transformed and it's that misrecognition in some ways that led him to denounce uh bhuvan shom as as an important or new venture so what i what i write here is that so i say that there was enough in bhuvan shom that make it possible for us to historicize the many stylistic and narrative elements in the film that i've done in the chapter but historicism falls short when we analyze the moment of aesthetic opening that i describe in the haunted house scene in the film echoing mrinal sen i write that we miss the film's newness through conventional viewing in which the wish that a bad man will turn good at the end comes true we also reduce it when we see it as a saga of a colonial era bureaucrat embracing the postcolonial nation through his forgiving of petty infractions and corruption of a subordinate bhuvan shom is new because it is a challenge to political moral and aesthetic judgment it resists ad infinitum a positive definition of newness while inciting the critic and the viewer to always debate what was new in the new cinema and that's how you conclude that chapter really right right to be remembered exactly. um i think um i now request you to move to the second half of the book and ask you um rather a large question that you describe to us the ways in which uh the career or the the way you look at any of these three you've already spoken about ghatak if we were to take up uh, rai or minal sen how do you look at uh, their films um in the ways in which they disrupt uh, this sense of uh, progressive time in certain moments in their films will you give uh, one example that sort of walks it out you know one of the things that i've said in previous talks that i've given is that donna haraway in a very different context uses the expression staying with the trouble and that's what these filmmakers and particularly the three trilogies that i describe describe in the second part of the book ray and sen city trilogies and godrok's megera katara komal gandhar and shubhar partition trilogies really yeah i mean you know what 
that is what these trilogies show us to do, which is to stay with the trouble. So, for example, in Rinal Sen's Calcutta trilogy, which consists of Interview, which was made in 1970, Calcutta 71, yes. that was made in 1972, and Podatik, uh, which was made in 1973, you have the figure of an angry young Bengali male youth at, at, at its core. But the film also, or the trilogy also opens up way, ways for thinking about cinema in a milieu that was caught up in a maelstrom of leftist politics and violence in, in West Bengal, Sen's home state, and in other parts of India. The film's narratives carried ample references to radical Marxist and Maoist, to the radical Marxist and Maoist leanings of youth of the day. Now, tempting though it is to see the city during the turbulent period of the late 60s and early 70s, Sen's Calcutta trilogy, I argue in the book, is, is far more ambitious in scope because it's really through the trilogy he presents his unique reading of 20th century Indian history that culminated in the post-colonial present. I argue that the films should be seen as a way of historicizing the present of the early 1970s in Calcutta. And he does this by conjoining anger with youth in the trilogy. And his sense angry young man was the embodiment of a complex and contradictory array of political sentiments. And in, as he put it in an interview, for Sen, the history of 20th century India is best told as a history of poverty. He wrote the history of India as a continuous history, not of synthesis, but of poverty and exploitation. When he was asked to clarify what he believed the nature, whether he believed that uh, the nature of that exploitation remained unchanged over time, he noted that his focus was not exploitation, but poverty and how poverty debases human beings, disintegrates the whole pattern and the whole system. Poverty, he argued, was the genesis to the anger that, that he wanted to show in the trilogy. And he clarified that the political stakes of such a portrayal was that what uh, were, were supreme for him. And that was his angry young man. Now, the angry young man, as you know, has had a rich and enduring life in Indian popular cinema, incarnated through the figure of Amitabh Bachchan. But the Bachchan figure has none of the irony that Sen packed into his portrayal of the angry young man. It was an ironical stance that ranged across his portrayal of, of this figure's uh, immersion in revolutionary ideology, to his obliviousness to skewed gender relations in family and society. Much of the political ambivalence that was constitutive of Sen's protagonists disappeared from Hindi cinema's angry young man. And it is really the genealogy of the previous on-screen life of the angry young man that I present in in my Sen chapter that I call Anger and After. Right. Um, 
let me then ask you about the disappearance or what you call the disappearance of art films from India since the 1980s. Um, mm -hmm. Also, to anticipate the final question and if you were to take them together, why mm -hmm. is it that you write, we need to return to, to the art films or the ways they envisage the present of a certain kind of present today? And which is how I'd like you to end, really. Maybe I, I said it in a more extreme way that uh, the art film disappeared. I mean... No, you, that's an extreme way of putting it. You don't exactly say that, but you kind of talk about how they morph into other kinds of film cultures subsequently. Yes. I did write that, you know, because I said that it, like that people have argued that it abruptly disappeared from the Indian film yeah. scene in the 80s. And I discuss some structural changes that were taking place. You yes, know, we, I yes. discuss, for example, that, again, returning to the state with which you began, I discussed how it's how, kind of appropriated as a heritage of sorts. Yes. Right. And I talk about the formation of the National Film Development Corporation or the National right. Film Development Corporation became this big merger of the Indian Motion Pictures Export Corporation, the Directorate of Film Festivals and the Film Finance Corporation. And right. while the Film Finance Corporation actually uh, wanted to encourage low-budget films in different regional languages. The brief of the NFDC, if you go with uh, one of the first films that it financed, was to, in fact, finance... Very Gandhi, you write about it. Yes. Gandhi. Yes. Now, and at the moment, I mean, you know, I talk about how art cinema is almost... I mean, people often talk about the art cinema of the 1950s, 60s, 70s um, as exemplary, but, you know, exemplary of a particular kind of low-budget filmmaking, a certain kind of efficiency, or as heritage projects, as you put it. Now, to me, I mean, I think low-cost filmmaking and issues of heritage and cultural preservation in a sense, they are seen as art cinema's lasting legacy in the era of uh, globalization. But I find I found that rather dissatisfying, and I I I have asked myself that, you know, why were these films so meaningful to me? I mean, I spent a very long time with them, and I was trying to understand my own preoccupation. With, with these films. And it seemed to me that when, you know, when we're living through the kind of times that we're living through, where there is, where there is dizzying, or, the, you know, the pace of change is dizzying, the level of uncertainty, not least the uncertainty induced by the global pandemic that we're all, uh, that we're all inhabiting for the last uh, two years, when we're faced, when we're living through a present where there is rampant globalization, there are threats to the well-being of the planet as a whole. Why did I, you know, what is it that made these films so compelling? And my 
own feeling was that in the way in which these films thought about the present, it was almost as if they were showing us how to, through their particular narrative structures as well as their various cinematographic strategies, you know, they were basically showing us how to inhabit a present without necessarily knowing, I mean, a present which is disoriented. Where are you going? Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, when, uh, <laughs> like how to live with a sense of disorientation. And I think, I mean, make no mistake, I'm not saying that the times of those films and our times are identical. We are not. No, of course not. But those films and those filmmakers worked out their ways for negotiating their uncertain times. And I think that the legacy of the art film is to leave us with roadmaps, if you will, of the times that they inhabited, where in a Koselekian fashion, you could argue that the realm of experience could no longer be a guide to the horizon of future expectations. I think that uh, rounds it up wonderfully. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, today, I think in retrospect, we can recognize in these films what I call the pioneering labor of a certain kind that we also need today. The creation of historical sensibilities that are adequate to the challenge of our own disorienting times. That, that really rounds it up beautifully. And I cannot thank you enough for making it seem so possible. The, the sheer complexity of the book for translating it uh, into a fairly easy to understand uh, kind of narrative that you've just given us. Thank you so much, uh, Rochonadi, for well, thank this. Thank you for of your time I'll, I'll, and for, uh, for how, how closely mm. you read the book. It's really the best gift that any author can ask for. This is Onirban signing off. Do please subscribe and let us know what you like and what you'd like included in History Chatter. Bye-bye.